Alright, welcome to Pipsqueak, the cafe where we serve you delightful, slightly intense, but definitely worthwhile conversations. A podcast focused on bringing people together by drinking, listening, and conversing. So grab your favorite drink and let's see what's on today's menu. Alright, so welcome to Pipsqueak, the cafe, and this is a special episode (laughs) Because I am joined by none other than Miss Kina Kina in the city. What up? Well, hello. Hey. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. So, before we get into any conversation, I always tell the people what I'm drinking on. And so, I'm going to go here first to you. What are you drinking on over there? I am having my favorite, which is Cabernet Sauvignon. Look at you, Cabernet. Um, And so I am drinking on what I normally drink on, which is some good old bourbon. Look at that. Look at that ice. You see that ice? Ooh, look at that. Fill it up. Some good old bourbon with some um, lime, some lemon, and some sugar-free Red Bull. Okay. (laughs) So... The last time we saw each other in person was in the mm-hmm. like graduation, which was in um, 1999. <laughs> High school. How many years ago was that? Yes. Let me do some quick 20, calculation. What? Almost 22. Almost 22. Oh my God. Almost 22 years. Um, so anyhow, so I, I asked Kina to come and have a conversation with me for this particular episode. This episode is, um, episode 35. It is titled straight up no chaser, but we are going to be discussing Judas and the black Messiah, which is showing on HBO max. If you have it until March something, I think. And then I I guess they're going to take it off or whatever. Um, but Kina is basically an expert in blackness (laughs) um she is an author she is an educator she is an all-around phenomenal woman so i'll let her um introduce herself tell you a little bit about herself and what she's doing go ahead kina okay thanks so much for having me i'm excited to be here and talking about chairman fred um he definitely inspires a lot of the work that i do but uh, my name is kina day uh i am a an administrator in literacy education and so I do a lot of work in um, school districts um, across the country to help um, improve literacy structures and things like that in curriculum and instruction as my day job but I do a lot of community work um, in community education and so I get the opportunity to organize um, community education in many different political organizations so that's pretty much what I do um, have a great time as an author having the opportunity to uh, travel and speak and be in different um spaces to talk to people about black history. Um, I am a black womanist, an Africana womanist, and that's the ideology that I do my work on. So I'm very um, vested in the preservation of black love and um, the protection of black families. And so that's a lot of the work that I do. Excellent. So um, tell the people the name of your books. Yes. Um, My first book is called The Colors of My Boudoir. 
um, which is actually a novel um, that follows a woman's journey as she, you know, tries to find herself and figure out the best mate for her. And my second um, book is called Aphrodisiacs, which is a uh, compilation of short pieces of poetry, uh, memoir, essays, that really talks about black love um, in the now and the present, but also what white supremacy has done to um, our black love ships and the different things that we can do to, um, you know, restore our black families. Look at you now. Okay. So when, so this is okay. So, you know, this is me tell, I think I know quite a bit about black history and being pro black, but this is the, technically the first time I ever heard of the term black womanist. So other people may not understand that we've heard of feminism. We had, we've heard of that concept. So what is black womanist? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so, um, Feminism is rooted in white supremacy. And so if you follow any of the pieces of um, the, the suffragist movement, you know, black women were not a part of those conversations, nor were they a part of the big feminist outbreak that took place in like the 1960s, 1970s, where, you know, they wanted black women to be on board to talk about women's rights. But when we talk about women's rights, that was specifically for white women. And so in a lot of times, you know, we as black women were just our needs and our issues were ignored. And so um, Alice Walker, who, of course, you probably know, wrote Color Purple, um, started to get away from this idea of black women needing to beg white women for a seat at the table in the feminist table. And so instead, she let people know that, you know, until black women are free, nobody will be able to be free. And so she began this um, ideology called womanism. And a lot of her books are steeped in it, including The Color Purple. Um, and so I follow um, the more contemporary version of that that was uh, put out by Dr. Clenora Hudson-Weems, uh, where she put together an idea of Africana womanism that is rooted strictly in what we do to identify ourselves, identity work on understanding the history of, you know, um, white supremacy in this country and oppression. Also just renaming ourselves and reclaiming who we are through those identities. Also just making sure that we have a hyper focus on building our communities through our families and making sure that, you know, we're building wealth, that we are also um, working to build these blocks in our black communities to really um, empower ourselves through the political process. And so that is what it's about. And it's just quite a bit of information that you can find about it um, to go a little bit more, but it has 18 different um, pieces that women have to, you know, kind of study and understand how we can put the pieces together to get to our uh, liberation. Okay. Yeah. So that, I didn't know that. So I'm glad I had you on here. <laughs> I would not have known about that term um, and how to recognize it. Um, and, so, and, and so feminism, I, I know we're supposed to be talking about Judas and, Messiah and, and um, the Black Messiah, but I think all of this goes into it as well, right? So yeah. when you say feminism is rooted in um, white supremacy, why do you make that mm -hmm. statement? Why... 
Yeah, uh, just simply because it's the truth. Um, basically, you know, white women wanted freedom from patriarchy, right? They wanted to ensure that they had reproductive rights, that they had equal pay and all that other kind of stuff. But that was where it, it ended. It didn't go to the needs that we have as black women. So, you know, how we are, um, how we are um, neglected within the health spheres and, you know, our reproductive health wasn't looked at as the same way or disenfranchised in the same way as white women, but they didn't fight for that equal rights for us. It just stopped at what their interests were. And so that is pretty much what the issue is with feminism. And you can read pieces on from Bell Hooks and other prominent, even Angela Davis, um, prominent black women who, you know, considered themselves black feminists. But that is a, you know, that's <laughs> that's a movement steeped in the interest of white women and not all women. And so and, so, and, and just to put context to things, you're currently, let me make sure I got this right, in Denver, right? Colorado. Yes, I am in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I used to work. Um, I used to live in New Mexico, but my off my supervisor, she was in Denver, so I would have to travel there a lot. Denver is a mm-hmm. great city, right? It's a lot to do, but um, it's it could be considered pretty white. It uh, is. <laughs> and so, in in the sense of what you do, when you, I think when you started, you indicated that part of this is. Um, creating the, your own tape, right? Um, mm-hmm. And as a black womanist, am I saying it right? Womanist? Yes, Africana womanist is what I Okay, am. Africano womanist. Mm-hmm. How do you do that in the space that you currently reside in? Yes. So I am actually a board member for the Colorado Black Women for Political Action, and I get the opportunity to design our uh, community um, education efforts as well as youth engagement. And so um, basically, there are six, I would say Denver is about 10% black and continuing to grow. So what's really exciting to me about it, especially since I've lived in very large black cities prior to living here in Denver, um, that we can come together a little bit quicker. We have a black mayor. I don't even know if people know that, but Denver has had a black mayor for about nine years now. And he's not even the first black mayor. He's the second black mayor. So there's lots of opportunities for us to be able to link arms and come together and really educate our communities and get out there. Um, I know all of the (laughs) people who are elected officials here in my area. I see them regularly. They have town halls on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? We just make sure that we get information out. We make sure that our our organizations are working together as much as we can so that we can get information to the people as much as we can. So um, we're also very close to Aurora, which is a little bit more black than Denver, I would say, um, and other places like Colorado Springs, which has a pretty robust black community. But we just have to work hard to, you know, link arms together so that we can progress and um, we have a lot of black elected officials in um, Colorado which is very exciting I don't know if you got a chance to see um, the current the um, most recent (laughs) impeachment processes but uh, Joe Neguse is actually from Colorado and we see him all the time and he you know is definitely deep and steeped into the work that we do as community um, activists so you know we do what we can um, but there's been a lot of progress here and that's been really exciting and so we just try to unify as much as we can so and <clears throat> this would be my last question 
um, mm-hmm. related to you personally. Then we'll move to um, Chairman Fred. Um, yes. So how do you, as an educator, right, working with students, um, mm-hmm. how did you find, how did you find them to be, did you find them to be receptive um, of what you were trying to instill or teach? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But that's because I know my culture very well. Um, I know the literature of my culture very well. I got the opportunity during my master's. Um, you know, I went to a HBCU, Tennessee State University. And during TSU. my master's, I got a chance. <laughs> yes. And during my master's, I got a chance to work at Fisk um, and work in their world-renowned um, library, which was actually curated by um, one of Langston Hughes's good friends from the Harlem Renaissance, Arna Bontomps. And so he just had this wealth of like, you know, forgotten texts that people just didn't even know about or not anthologized. And so I just really tried to bring those types of texts to my students so that they could really see themselves within those texts and really, you know, become active in how they respond to it. And so that's always been, you know, when I was a teacher, something that really guided my work is that I wanted it to be relevant. I wanted it to be real. And I wanted them to be able to act on the things that we talked about in class. So, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that you you say Langston Hughes because I, I'm in a process. I started a, a newsletter. I haven't sent it out yet, but this is going to be the first issue. And one of the things that I talk about is um, just some black history facts um, and the fact that there are a lot of school districts that are trying to actually take out um, African-American studies, black history uh, out of the curriculum. Um, but um, one of the things that I put on there was that the first lawyer um, first mm-hmm. black lawyer was actually in Ohio in like 1854 and it happened to mm-hmm. be Langston Hughes great yes. great uncle uh, yes it was his uncle yeah mm-hmm. Mercer is mm-hmm. I think it was his, his name yeah um, and it's just it's just interesting so that meant that means that this conversation was meant to be because I had just finished that piece last night look how God worked yes <laughs> It's working out here, honey. All right, so let's talk about this movie. So what do you think about the movie? We'll talk about the movie from a cinematic perspective, but then let's talk about some of the historical pieces because that's kind of, that's important, um, especially for what you do. So what do you think about the movie? Well, um, I actually went into the movie with bated breath. Um, Although it was different than most of the other films that speak on, um, you know, African-American trauma, it's usually directed by white people or written by white people or something where white people have something to say about it. Whereas in this case, it was a black director, it was a black writer, it was a black producer. So I went in with a lot of hopes that this was going to really, really portray you know, at least that assassination part, because it was such a um, climactic, you know, part of history in the BPP. And so I just wanted to make sure that that was done with respect, that it was done with grace, that our trauma, because it's a very traumatic story. I didn't want that trauma to be disrespected or done for entertainment, you know. And so I went into it very nervous and I don't know if you remember but like in 2017 that movie Detroit came yes, out I rem- and I remember being extremely excited about it and it just was unnecessary trauma and there was nothing that really could be gleaned from it except that 
black people were traumatized. And so I felt like this movie did a great job not presenting it in that way. Um, I felt like it did a great job setting up um, Fred Hampton as a foil to who was actually the center character, the informant, William O'Neill. I felt like they did a great job setting them up as foils where they did tap a little bit into Hampton's background and less about William O'Neill. And you had to infer a little bit more about his motivations and stuff. And so I would have liked it. A mo- I liked a more round character. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think the story was great. It was accurate. It was very accurate to history. Um, I thought it was great showing because there's just a lot of video about Fred Hampton that existed in the you know months and the year right before his death. So you can see him saying all of these speeches and things like that that they portray right here. Like none of that was made up. <laughs> all of those those terms and those those um, phrases that's that was real life. And so I felt like they did a great job portraying history and just treating one of our icons with a lot of respect. Yeah. So I. I concur with that. I felt like initially when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, here we go again. Right. That's what I was because that's one of the reasons that I like that new Martin Luther King movie that came out with the release of the FBI records. Right. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to see um, another depiction of tearing down excellence. Right. In the black community. Like we all have we all have our backgrounds. We all have shit. Um, that's in our closets no matter how you want to think about it mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. it 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 humiliates the fact that we have black excellence um, based upon how they portray particular characters and so I I agree yes. with you with this and what I did not know until I listened I don't know if you know this there's a companion podcast to the movie mm-hmm. and um, his son Chairman Fred's son is actually there. Yeah, what I did, Junior. yeah, Junior. What I didn't know was all of the negotiations that the director had to go through with the family because the family had for years. I want to say when I listened to this episode, it was like twenty years. They refused to let anything come out um, about um, Chairman Fred because they just wanted to honor his his. Um, his, yeah, his, his mother his was very against that. Iberia was very against yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And his um his widow. I don't know if she got married again or not. The um Well, they were never, never married. They were never married, but the one They were never married. The one who yeah. is um Fred Jr.'s yes, uh, mother. Um mm-hmm. so yeah, so I I I liked it. And then what 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 I didn't put together until watching this movie last night because i watched it last night so i could be prepared right (laughs) (laughs) um i remember watching eyes of the prize and i remember the interview with bill o'neill but i never really put them together about his his role in the killing of this 21 year old man who was yes yeah um so anyhow um so let's talk about let's talk about a little bit about um some of the historical aspects. Now, when you indicated mm-hmm. um, your opinions about the movie, you said you thought it was historically accurate. So, um, where do you want to go? <laughs> um, I want to start off by saying, especially with uh, what you just mentioned about Bill O'Neill and him downplaying it in Eyes of the Prize, and obviously it being something that haunted him so bad that he immediately committed suicide. As soon as like, they, it's the same as day. As soon as it, <laughs> the same day it aired. Yeah. So you know that he knew that that was some bullshit. But at the end of the day, 
um, I want to just raise up this idea of where we were in 1969 that caused all of this, you know, and I talk about this a lot when people ask me about like the story of Fred Hampton and what actually happened. And what most people don't really know is that J. Edgar Hoover's very first civil rights leader that he took out through the same exact tactics, um, informants, um, you know, people around this person get really close to him and feeding all this information and giving something very minute to put him in jail or whatever. The very first person he did that to was um, Marcus Garvey. His very first man he took out was Marcus Garvey. He was, Marcus Garvey was his first black messiah. Mm -hmm. And so he put all of those systems and stuff in place that took out Fred Hampton 60 years before I'm saying that wrong. 40 years before his death, um, he did the same thing to Marcus Garvey. The same exact thing. Where was and he then? He was not the director then, right? He was. He had just become the FBI's director. That's right, because he's one of the he longest serving directors, yes, right? Yes, yes. And he was tasked with taking Marcus Garvey out first for the same exact reason. And they found this small little, because, you know, Marcus Garvey was putting stocks and stuff together. Right. He had all these co-ops where people were sewing in money into like their needs in the community like this man had a whole enterprise going right on. and people don't even realize like some of the sim like some of the symbols and stuff that we um you know like like really try to you know support and, and push up now such as the red black and green flag and you know all these other things that was from marcus, marcus Garvey, yeah yeah and so they took these informants they gave small information on his stocks. They found one little small mistake that was made and they tried to give him like a huge sentence for this. And so the same exact thing happened to Fred Hampton. And so I just want people to know, like, I really believe that we need to make a movement to really denounce J. Edgar Hoover because he took and, you know, was responsible for the deaths of just very innocent black men who wanted freedom and so i just wanted to raise that up before we actually start talking about why fred hampton became that focus yeah so I, and i and i think that's important because i mean on i take notes when i look at these things and and one thing i would say is i i've always despised jay edgar hoover i never every time i go near the building in dc i curse the building because he should not have a name a building named Should after not. him but that goes to show that there are i mean i from a historical perspective there are a lot of white folks who have names on buildings who shouldn't have names on buildings there are a lot of white folks who have statues that shouldn't have statues and people yes. tend to overlook the history the horrid history that those people brought for a group of individuals right um, yes. And because we are seeing when we are educated, right, the fact that you are knowledgeable, the fact that you are able to articulate and speak facts and speak power to name and speak power to facts is something that intimidates a lot of individuals because they don't want to see us prosper. Right. They don't want to see us progress because when when the movie opened up, he basically said that um, Chairman Fred was the single most greatest threat threat to the national security yes. more than russia and yes. more than china and i'm like yes. how do you get there right he also said the same thing about martin luther king at one point yes so yes. how do you get there except for the fact that the 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 thread that holds all of this together i think is two things educated black men 
and black men who are able to move people other than black folks right because when you get other people on your group in your group that are non-black right it is mm-hmm. oh that is a problem they're stirring up yeah. something right yeah it, and they're common yes it is <laughs> it was it was so frustrating to hear that um and to see it portrayed and i, I forgot the, who who what's the name was that martin sheen who played him in the movie yes that was martin <laughs> sheen it was because i started because he's on um this is a side note but he's on frankie and grace or grace and frankie and i liked him in that show and now when i see him here i'm like it's just it's just amazing how characters can play a nasty role and then you just start disliking them right right because <laughs> that was a i had a Absolutely. grudge uh, this side note i had a grudge against will smith for years right every movie he ever came out with i would never support it because i was so pissed with the change between black viv and light-skinned viv and I, you know, I wasn't involved in it. I wasn't there. But ever since then, I was so pissed off that I, I would... got my auntie Viv <laughs> twist today. In fact, yes. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, but then I thought. Um, so I, when the movie opened up, I liked the fact that they showed um, Chairman Fred, and yes. he was speaking to the fact of. That the folks were, those are not riots, but those are rebellions. People are rebelling because of conditions, not because of people. Mm-hmm. And rebellions created out of the condition, right? Yeah. So what are you uh, putting that in? I, I want to kind of jump for today. Remember what happened on January yes. 6th um, at the Capitol, yes. right? Yes. Was that a rebellion? Was that a riot? Or insurrection? Oh, man. What are you- How much time you got? <laughs> That was absolutely an insurrection. It was not a rebellion. And here's why. Um, I don't know how much uh, your listeners have gotten to the Equal Justice Institute where they, you know, now uh, show all of the lynchings that happened in America. Um, But at the Equal Justice Institute, they talk a lot about, and also, let me say, Henry Louis Gates shined a light on this in his documentary um the african americans many rivers to cross Mm -hmm. where white backlash uh is always the response to progress Mm -hmm. and so anytime that their liberties and their you know white supremacist structures are threatened that is generally the response and you can see that starting in uh around 1868 when black men were given the right to vote mm-hmm. before white women. Um, you had white suffragists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony saying some very deplorable things to Frederick Douglass at the time. Right, right. I remember that. I didn't think wow. he should have had the, the right Not to that I was vote there. before them. Right. But they didn't think he should have had to vote as a former slave before them as middle class white women. That was their backlash. Then when black men started to go for office, like 2000 black men were elected. That's when we first got our black U.S. representatives, our first black our first black senator. And what did they do? They back. They tried to lynch. They tried to kill. They did the massacres, and then they went to the Capitol and made Rutherford B. Hayes start repealing some things back to not protect black people and doing this progress. That is the truth of our country, 
And so what happened on January the 6th was exactly what has happened throughout history, that anytime that there is progress for people of color, there is, or any other, you know, disenfranchised group, there is white backlash. Yeah. The end. Yeah. And, 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 and what's, you know, what's striking to this is that um, the place where they went to, to, I guess, to take over, um, in reality, was built by black hands. Um, and so it it is is yes. Over the years, they did more things to it, but the foundation of the U.S. Capitol, the foundation of what was called then the President's House, was was created by black folks, right? Mainly enslaved folks, because when they tried to go and hire people to do it from Europe, they were like, "Yeah, nah, bro." We, yeah, yep. we ain't coming there. And so the next best best thing was to use free labor or labor that you can yes. get at cheap, and that was the black folks. Free labor. You know what I mean? Um, yep. And so it's it it has always been foundationally the aspect, at least from my perspective, that black people are always less than. This is not yours. And the moment that we come to rise up to recognize that we have just as much as authority, just as much power there's always an opportunity or an attempt to break those individuals down um, absolutely and, and, and that's what that's the story of fred yeah. hampton absolutely yeah and, and and um i i did an episode on 13th it was christian denise and i and part of 13th they showed the fred hampton um massacre right or assassination assassination there's no other words that you really can use right um and to see that little piece in 13th, right? But now to see it in a full movie, it really put things into perspective about how anything that we do that is seen positive is always spun as a negative. It's spun as hate. Think yeah. about black the Black Lives Movement, right? Black Lives Matter. Some people like it. Some black folks don't like it, right? But at the end of the day, it is seen or they turn it around as if it's hate. And it's not, yeah. I don't think that's the foundation of what those groups were founded for, right? Absolutely not. Um, but that's what white supremacy will have you believe because there is a fight against progress. Yeah. And that's that's basically, yeah. that's it, yeah. you know? And, 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 and I don't know if people just don't want to recognize it, just don't get it, or they really believe that the times have changed. But the remnants of everything that happened to us as a, a group of individuals, African-Americans, blacks, um, Africans, however you want to, what term best fits you, Negro, people of color. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's it has improved, but it has improved so at such small increments that the progress that we currently have doesn't necessarily seem like progress if does that make sense what i'm trying to say yeah um but anyhow okay i mean no i agree with you because uh just like we said in 1933 when dr carter g woodson wrote the miseducation of the negro i guarantee you half of the things that he advocated for we still do not have right if you go back and look at marcus garvey's declaration of the negro peoples of the world that was written in 1920 most of what he mentioned in there <laughs> 
we still are asking for right a lot of those demands we're still asking for yeah. in 2021 101 years later yeah. so yes there has been no progress and that's why someone like fred hampton was a threat because he knew that if he united that he brought people to understand that this was beyond race this is about in you know keeping capitalism in right so they're gonna make us feel like we're enemies for these very trite reasons such as race such as you know class or whatever right. such as gender right. they're going to do these things to keep us separate but if we can unite and understand that we have a common you know need and a common need for progress then we combat this capitalism we can't combat this white supremacy that's why he was ultimately a threat so um let's uh, let's let's talk about the title itself okay yes so judas uh, i think stems at least my memory serves me correctly stems from a uh, a biblical standpoint with the guy who that's right. who um basically betrayed jesus right Yes. And yes. the Black Messiah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Why why do you think that title was chosen? A. And why and and, and B, do you think Fred Champ Chair uh, excuse me, Chairman Fred was the Black Messiah? Or do you think that the title itself kind of denigrates us or make us a monolithic community? Hmm. So why it was chosen uh, was, yes, it was biblical, of course. Um, and it was also chosen because that is a direct quote from what J. Edgar Hoover said. He particularly put, you know, uh, his his agents out to make sure that they dismantled Fred Hampton and called him directly the Black Messiah. However, um, I also think that it was chosen because of this, this, this idea of a foil. You know what I mean? Fred Hampton was the exact opposite as a youth because actually Bill O'Neill was a year younger, I think, or a couple months younger than Fred Hampton was. Right. Um, they they kind of juxtapose those two guys and their differences, you know. But Fred Hampton is, you know, com like dedicated to the community. And he is dedicated to this community because as a young child, Emmett Till was killed. His mother, that is very true, it's a true story. His mother, Iberia, was an early babysitter of Emmett Till. And so it's written, and I have this book here, um, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, um, that was written by his uh, lawyer, uh, Jeffrey Haas. But um, he, he, they, they talk about it in Chicago all the time, about how that deeply impacted him, mm -hmm. where he saw, you know, Emmett Till's mother have to bring his, you know, mutilated body at 14 years old back to Chicago and literally have to, in that pain, show everybody her child's face because of what white supremacy had done to her child. And he felt that very deeply because his mother took it very personally. And he was thinking as a young black child, literally like, is this what this country will do to me because I am black? And so he he became convicted with saying, I am for the people. I will do everything. I am willing to give my life right. to be able to make sure that my children and the people that I love and the women that I protect do not ever have to, you know, live their lives in this way. That was a direct foil to him sacrificing himself for the people against this man who is 
just jealous and was manipulated to do wrong against this person it's an exact allusion to what happened in that biblical story with Judas and Jesus and so I think that it was apropos um, just simply because you had someone who had been termed a black messiah even though he did not term himself that and he was willing to give his life for the people and so they had those motifs all throughout the movie but that was actually really true that was true he really all things aside he believed in the power of the people he believed that the people were the ones who if we struggled if we loved each other we will get to where we need to get to yeah. and if that doesn't sound like the the principles of what jesus believed in the the and what he stood for in the bible i don't know what it is yeah. so that's pretty much what that was that was why i was chosen now for your second question uh-huh do i think that uh that was a good representation I, I do believe that it, it was I mean just simply because of you know circumstance but I don't think that it makes us monolithic because he is just quintessential he is a leader that we hadn't seen before him and so far we have not seen after him and so I do think that you know that's apropos for that reason so <clears throat> do I, I, I want to stay on that for a moment mm -hmm. do black people black folk Afro folks, Afrocentric folks, do we need a savior? Do we need someone? I mean, because I here's why I'm posing this question, right? Um, I'm just because we we have some we had them we have Malcolm X, right? We have Mager Evers, we have Martin Luther King, um, we had Chairman Fred. For some, it was Huey P. Newton. For others, it's Bobby Seale, right? So we have these groups, and I know I'm missing people, but we've had these figures who are seen as prominent for black people, right? And if you want to go current, um, what's the man with the gray hair that worked for James Brown? That worked with Al Sharpton, right? <laughs> you had a back home in Detroit. You had, um, what's the man who went for president? Push, rainbow push. Oh, Jackson Jackson. Jackson, right? Because I remember walking on Woodward and he had his little building over there that they shut down because they started stealing money. Putting that aside, okay. <laughs> all right. So, so I say all this to say, do we need a figure? Here's my attitude about it. Fred Hampton was not the first black messiah. Like I said, the first black messiah to J. Edgar Hoover was Marcus Garvey. Right. But that was before he was killing folks. Okay. Right, right, right. He got to the point where he put that COINTELPRO together and started killing folks. But um, none of those men chose those roles. They wanted freedom for their families. And if people put those, you know, labels on them that they became these leaders or whatever, I'm 100% sure none of them really signed up for the heinous ways that they were taken out and their lives were ended. And if you look at someone, like say Nipsey Hussle, mm -hmm. um, who is a contemporary, who definitely came from a different space. But at the end of the day, you know what I'm saying? Like was for the community, was doing amazing things yeah. in his community, trying to teach people economic, you know, um, empowerment and liberation. And just to be gunned down, like slaughtered in front of his business. Yeah. 
like it was nothing, I don't think anybody would want to sign up to do that. Yeah, yeah, no. Why would you want to be that person to sign up so that somebody can, you know, put people that you think you can trust around you yeah. that you absolutely can't and they know all of your intimate details, but they are being paid by the FBI. Would you want to sign up for that? Because I know I absolutely would yeah, not. No. And at the end of the day, I just don't think that those are labels that they chose for themselves. It's just that they were those voices. They were convicted. They believed that this is what their purpose in was for their lives. And, you know, whether it was true or not, they were willing to put their lives on the line for the people. And so I just think that that is what we have to take away from it, other than saying, do we need somebody now? Now, the biggest issue that we see here in 2021 for black people, especially after we went out and delivered this election to the Democratic Party, is that now we're not organized. And so what happens when you don't have a leader is that you become unorganized. And so we just have to be very careful about that because we have so many powerful women now who organized all of 2020 to mobilize and get people on the ground to turn out the vote. And now their lives have been threatened, you know, yeah. all these other kinds of things. So we just have to be careful making martyrs out of our leaders and do more to make sure that we protect them because right. it's, it's just no reason that we continue to lose our leaders in this. And, 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 and to your point earlier, I think I, I think this is a good segue we, to not not that we're going to stop talking about the movie, but I do think this is a good connection to one of the things that you said earlier about um, what you what you were. Um, one of the things that you were doing was creating a table. Right. Um, and so I, I think <clears throat> this is my opinion. Um, folks may disagree. You might disagree. But I there cannot be just one leader i feel like there are too much vulnerability yes too much vulnerability and there's room at the table right when you create the table at least one of the things that i've learned from looking at history um even history before me is that folks were creating or creating tables but creating it so that others can sit at it right so the more you the more people you get that look like you at the table the more able the more likely you are to make an effect change right um and so i just feel like sometimes people get stuck at least currently a lot of people get stuck on their egos about you know i did this that and a third versus this table is yes my seat is right here but if you want to pull up next to me pull your damn chair up next to me right and let's get to work let's put our minds together our our our, our work ethics together so that we can affect change um i just think sometimes but we, we think lose sight of what, sorry go ahead but i think that that's what we have to illuminate about fred hampton that's exactly what he was what doing he to do. yes that's exactly what he wanted to do he wanted to make sure everybody came to the table and understood that we had to unite together and he just put his life on the line to be able to get it done i think that um you know some of the things that they definitely mentioned uh about him that is very true is that yes he ended up having to stop driving because the police harassed him mm -hmm. and he definitely sacrificed driving yeah. just so he can be left alone. Yeah. He absolutely had community education classes. He went to community college and was a criminal justice um, major at the time. And so he literally stopped going to school when he couldn't get there, when he couldn't drive anymore and started educating the people. And what I see in the work that I do is just that people just literally do not know. Keep in mind, like I mentioned before, many schools have these Eurocentric, you know, 
curriculums and philosophies and all these things where this type of truth is taken and kept away from us. And unless we do the work on our own to understand, you know, we don't know. And so that's why he tried to educate people out of that ignorance and out of that not knowing so that they can understand why you have to act now, yeah. why you have to get to a point that you're fighting for your own freedom. Yeah. So at the end of the day, like these are the things he wanted to put a credit union together in in, in Chicago. He wanted to have, you know, black um, health clinics that people can go to to help with sickle cell and all these other different things. He put co-ops together to be able to to feed, you know, hungry children. All of that was adequately shown in the movie and I was very happy about that. Yeah. But that's what he believed in. He believed in the history of co-ops and understood that that's how we got through segregation. Like we have to mobilize and work in unity to be able to get to the next level. Yeah. So that's what's, what's so important about making sure we're all sitting at the table and having each other's backs. Yeah. No, and um, and and now that you say that, I think it would be I would be remiss if I didn't and if I didn't say this, I remember, um, I don't know, maybe I was the ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade, and I happened to get a copy of Seize the Time by Bobby Seale, and that was my first true introduction and to the powerful movement, the powerful group known as the Black Panther, which. Chairman Fred was um, the president, uh, I guess the chairman of, they didn't use the term president, of the Illinois right. chapter of um, yes. Black Panthers. But part of that whole... Imp- 20 years old. Yeah, 20 years old. Exactly, right? And and lost his life at 21, right? Mm-hmm. Because, of yes. the, because of what you just said, his ability to bring people to the t- table, not just his friends, not just his family, folks who would potentially be considered his enemies, people who he could have and at times should have disliked and hated, right? But he understood what a movement meant. Um, and I think one of the most powerful things about being able to be a good leader is to bring into the fold those people who you normally wouldn't fuck with okay <laughs> for lack of facts. a better word right facts. <laughs> but i mean facts. but but the, you know the black panther panthers understood fundamentally when it comes to communities particularly impoverished communities folks get into crime a lot of times because they need to eat yeah right if if your right. if your stomach is 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 ailing because you haven't eaten days, you you yeah. need to survive. It's the natural instinct to survive, and if you're placed yeah. in an environment where the ability to to survive isn't there, where you can go get it legitimately, you naturally would mm-hmm. engage in other activity. And the Black Panthers understood that they created these programs so that kids can eat right, and. Yes. Folks like J. Edgar Hoover, as you saw in the movie, made that seem like that was an indoctrination too. No, bruh, they need to fucking eat. Like, <laughs> if we can't yeah. take care of our kids, who else will? But if you couldn't get white men during slavery to understand the problem with slavery, then how do you expect their descendants, yeah. such as J. Edgar Hoover, to understand yeah. it? And that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, that, that goes to the whole point of folks who say, well, that was so long ago. My, my, what is it? The sins of my forefathers should not be the, the weight that I bear or something like that. But mm-hmm. if you don't break that down, I think I wrote something on Facebook or Instagram the Period. other day. When you don't break down systems that are faulty and you just patch them up, you don't correct it, right? 
you don't. And 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 I think part of that problem is is that you people don't they don't break those barriers down and recognize in themselves the issues that make them tick, the issues that make them um, discriminatory, what have you, whatever. Um, because yeah. you know it's easier just cover it up and say, well, that's that wasn't me. I didn't do it personally. Um, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I wanna I wanna I don't wanna say pivot, but I think that this does speak to what you're meaning. Um, we talked about womanism versus feminism when we first started this conversation. And, um, I think that one of the major things that really draws me to Fred Hampton, especially in my, you know, studies of him over the past decade or so, um, is that what was actually depicted in that movie of, you know, very strong female characters there was very, very true. Mm -hmm. Um, like I told you, his mother meant a whole lot to right. him and he held her in his very high esteem. Um, when they when William O'Neill drugged him, that's who he was on the phone with when he fell asleep mid-sentence was with his mother. And so what he did that was something that I would say speaks to what you mean about people dismantling faulty systems was how men treated women within the BPP. Yeah. It was definitely known that they had very strong female, you know, uh, presence in the BPP throughout. But it's still, you had a lot of men who believed in patriarchy at the time, who looked at women as objects and things like that. And Fred Hampton did not stand for it ever. Yeah. And there was times when you would have visiting uh, BPP chapters to come into the Illinois chapter and thinking, yeah, y'all going to set up something for us to get with the women or whatever. And he would shut it down every single time. Yeah. So that wasn't a mistake or a lie in that movie. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. When he said it to Bill O'Neill, he did that to everybody in the BPP, sisters in arms. Yeah. And that actually was very, very, you know, contemporary because at the time, patriarchy is what led everything that we did. Yeah. But he made sure that you need to understand that black women are our partners in this struggle. Yeah. And that's something that I write a lot about um, in my books, which is the history of how black women were, you know, especially in Martin Luther King's, you know, his 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 system was very patriarchal. And so women took a back seat to the men who were leading the roles. He wanted them, Fred Hampton wanted women right next to him leading the way. And that was definitely before his time. And so I think that that's something that really speaks to what you're saying is that when we dismantle these pieces of the remnants of how America has always been, we have to be strong enough and bold enough to say, I it stops with me. Yeah. I am not gonna continue that practice. The the general you come on, Iyana Van Zet. <laughs> not on my watch. You know I watch her every Saturday, I love baby. You, her. Know. you know it, it is her last season, but I'm not gonna cry. Okay. I'm so sad. I know, I know. Okay. Um wait, so there was something that I, I wanted it was it's not I just think it's something that I really want to say but I when I heard it in the movie it it resonated with me so much um, when um, Chairman Fred said the people's beat you can never stop the you can't you can't what he, he said something like you can't never stop the party like they can't stop the people right you can you can try to kill a revolutionary, but you cannot kill the revolution. Yeah. And it's like that. But can I make a comment about yeah. that? Yeah. You was about to get into it, though. I don't want to stop no, no, you. No, no. Make it. Because you got that hand up. I and know. You get ready to go to town. <laughs> no, no. Go. I just 
just want to say that I don't know how much footage that you've watched or anybody has watched of Fred Hampton, but that piece of how Deborah Johnson really affected his life is so, it's just so profound to me. And we don't talk about it enough. And in my book, Aphrodisiacs, I did try to illuminate it. And I still don't think that I did as much justice as this movie did. Because listen, she was a poet. And she would hear him say these rousing things. But if you notice in the movie, that was like him in his 20s. He's young. Right. So he's, he's brash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's just he's going at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things where he's just going at it. He's been studying Malcolm X. He's been studying these like cadences by Malcolm X, where Malcolm X is doing more of this. And she's like, look, you can like kind of get more people if you soften your image and bring that to a poetic space because you are a poet. Yeah, I remember. I saw, I saw and that. She trained him and changed his delivery where he really, while he was in jail, and that all was you try true, to say women, are, when, women, women. It women is what's necessary that's what i hear no i'm just playing i'm not saying that women are necessary but i'm just saying that when a woman can or a love not even just a woman a person's love that really believes in who they are but can push who they are i just really think that that has to be illuminated yeah because at the end of the day he changed his whole way of delivery from those months leading up to his death based on her pushing him and saying hey you can't be this condemnatory towards people yeah. you have to you know present it in a different way and that's when you got that line you can kill a revolutionary but you cannot kill the you know the revolution yeah. that's where you get that from is because now he's trying to do these african beasts now he's spoken word now he is understanding yeah. that the power of the people means gleaning from the energy of the yeah. people and she taught him how to do that and she you know really illuminated that for him yeah. And so I just think that we have to also understand that us in our love ships as black people, we have to understand where we get our power from. Yeah. Our power is from the love that we have for another black person. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, like, I think that that has to be illuminated as well. And I think that that's something that's taking a little bit of a backseat in the discussion of this movie. Yeah. But. No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and I think the quote, so the quote, that I was talking about was after she softened him because remember the part where yes. the music was going um, yes and so that was a real thing yes. that really happened and the, the thing that when I saw this movie I was just going to say this it really resonated with me that um, you can't stop the party of the people and something of the nature I, I forgot the quote hold on I wrote it down because I mm -hmm. this reminded me you can you can't never stop the party like they can't stop the people and so mm -hmm. if you take it out just outside of this historical context right when we used to go partying you know the party don't stop because of fear I forgot the whole yes. thing right but I I never fully connected how rhythm how music and 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 blackness is important and how there's always a sense of happiness there's always a sense of pride in the concept of music because even like i was going to say when i was in high school and i um miss allen didn't like that i left but i left for a week two weeks to go to africa uh, <laughs> miss allen is our marcha band Child. when we, we we were in this high school in Ca cast tech and they thought we was a, a college marcha band putting that aside okay <laughs> But when I went to Africa, I understood instantly 
how much music matters the conditions we can be in whatever conditions we are right but there was a internal beat in these individuals there you look around where they were they were in prob they were impoverished they didn't have a lot but they had that twink in their eye and that pride and everything they did when they did their movement um, and go back to Ayana Van Zandt. Now I understand when she moves a certain way, when she's talking to them, like the waves matter. And I just thought that that was powerful. But to your point, but for the young lady in his life at that moment, right? He probably would have never got there. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 and so, yeah, it, 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 anyway, I just thought that was powerful. But inspirations are real. Yeah. But look at how white supremacy kills those inspirations. Look at what happened to her. In her being his inspiration yes. and loving a man who just wanted to be free, he missed the pregnancy of her carrying his son. Yes. He missed his life. He was killed two weeks before he was born. And at the end of the day, like, that is what white supremacy does to our leaders and how it destroys our black families. Yeah. And if we do not work to reclaim that, that is what is going to continue to happen. We have to stop that cycle. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like, I just really appreciated them showing that very deep, very organic love. And so many of us fall in love and have those types of inspirations. And at the end of the day, like, when you put your neck on the line supremacy will keep you away from that yeah. and that's what's really sad about this whole situation yeah. so i just really try to glean a lot of you know lessons yeah. for a person who definitely in, engages in community education and understand exactly what i need to do and what i feel convicted to do yeah. that at the end of the day like we have to learn how to protect our families more. And that was pretty much what he was saying. Yeah. It wasn't, they tried to make them look like they were anarchists. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was literally about, you're going to take me out. I need to try to protect myself. Yeah. And I have the right to do it. And you don't have the right to keep me yeah. from it. And you, you know what I think is beautiful, even about this conversation, the organic nature of and just by the way because i don't just so people know like we didn't get together and plan this conversation i don't have no outline like i like organic conversations because sometimes when i'm drinking on this podcast i might get a little drunk and everything is organic okay <laughs> but <laughs> but the one thing that i liked about this is that we spent more time talking about the power edifying edifying black blackness right and and capture, capturing and understanding and highlighting Chairman Fred and no time really focus on um, what's his name William O'Neill which I think is important because yeah we need to talk about him we need to talk about him though alright so let's 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 pivot then to talk about O'Neill go ahead Judas I mean he is the if you're going to find an illusion to really <laughs> okay show what he was it was Judas oh. I mean it's nothing else to okay. say okay okay no let me ask this okay Jesus forgave Judas right oh, child. He, he, he at least according to what I re read in the scripture he forgave him right he already knew what was going to happen because he had a chance to but see uh, we don't know if Fred Hampton had the opportunity do you but do you now, think saw... do you think sorry do you think he has suspicions that something was odd about O'Neill? I mean, I don't 
don't know. The people around him definitely did. Um, but Fred was, he was just in this zone where it's like, I know I'm going to be killed. Like, I know I'm going to be killed. Two, I believe in the people. And I would hate to, you know, blame a black man of this type of thing towards me. And it's not even about me. It's about the people. Yeah. So if they take me out, y'all should be able to keep it going anyway. So that was his mindset where it was not even that big of a deal, even if he was. But the people around him was like, nah, I don't trust him. Nah, I don't know. But let's 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 talk about let's let's talk about him. In this book, the assassination of Fred Hampton by his lawyer. Mm-hmm. And- yes. Yes, the assassination of Fred Hampton. How the FBI and the Chicago police murdered a Black Panther. This came out in 2009. In this book, they really break down what William O'Neill was like, honey. He was... Lakeith Stanfield did a great job portraying him. But baby, I'm sure that had to be a difficult thing to swallow as a rational human being because almost everybody like thought that this man was possibly schizophrenic and just had no understanding of what he was doing because they said that you saw in the movie that they said the man you when he was getting ready to drug chairman Frere, remember that mm-hmm. and they said oh hey you want something to drink but remember he couldn't even get it out because he was choked up getting ready to cry remember yeah. that man look that happened dude was very uncontrollable he actually was the one bill o'neill actually drove uh deborah over to the house right before they they you know for all that happened so i mean this dude was deeply into it right when it all came out that fred hampton was killed they said that bill o'neill was so uncontrollable and told his family i would like to be a pallbearer right they said he was broken up more than anybody in the actual bpp and so they all felt like he was very close to him in 1973 when they started to actually you know prosecute these folks for what they did to fred hampton like they said this man was coming in with italian suits well you know like tailored and all that other kind I of mean, stuff i mean you saw him so in they, a movie when he was snapping at the waiter because they were black and he was yes. eating some ribs and steaks this this is what he wanted like even in the movie Lakeith Stanfield remember when um Mitchell the guy the white FBI guy who brought him on uh-huh. and dismissed his charges or whatever remember when he said yeah well remember James Cheney was taken and they cut his penis yeah. off and did you see him laugh yeah. he snickered like that's how this man was perceived that he was just this very you know he tried to portray himself as the street dude street smarts all that and that like like he was that man that really gave an edge to the bpp because he knew how to make uh different like electronic devices he knew how to do and deal with like surveillance equipment and all that other kind of stuff so he tried to make himself seem like he was all of this but he also played the fbi where he kept getting money from their money Kept. He kept saying, and "You so gonna give me a raise? You gonna give me?" He got he got a two hundred dollar. Uh, that's real. He got a three hundred dollar bonus in real life yes, for his but work. But then eventually he started getting more and more and more yeah. and more. Like they was paying him so much money. And so at the end of the day, this was a scumbag. This was a man who had the audacity in his craziness to go on eyes on the prize and say. Oh, I was a part of the revolution. He did say that. He said I was part for the people who. Baby, you gotta be half 
halfway crazy. Yeah, see, I, but you know what? I really. I didn't have. I was tricked. I didn't know that they were gonna do all but, that. But you drew a whole map of the house. What did you think they was gonna do? But I really think he thought he was part of the revolution. And killing a revolutionary. It's crazy. But that's why they said that they he, knew it, that he had some type of mental issue. And do you know how he actually committed suicide? Have you seen that? No, I didn't see that part. He didn't, kill, he, he didn't shoot they him? What did he do? Hell no. They said that he ran in the middle of traffic in Chicago. Ran on the interstate. And killed himself Oh, right no. I didn't know that. I presume. So we're not talking about no real quick like Kurt Cobain. Let me get out of here. We're yeah. talking about a long death because if you run in the middle of a, a freeway yeah so they they think that his you know the it was like the lights was on and and the people wasn't home type situation with his brain you know yeah, what i'm saying like yeah he, every, everything isn't there I, the dots be, wasn't connected because even when you look <laughs> at his interview on eyes and the prize he doesn't he's there but he's not there D does that make sense like you yeah, see does. him physically yes his physical being is there but it's almost like the inner his I'm, I'm just going to use the word word so like I, i'm not a median or anything that but it just it just seemed like it wasn't there like he, yeah. he just yeah anything else you want to say about um this um o'neill <laughs> no i just think that in reflecting on this movie that we just have to take we have to zoom out and really think about how the criminal justice system you know has to be revamped yeah and that we have to do a better job of ensuring that our black boys especially have people of representation that they can see that are tangible to them so that they don't have to go down those same types of paths yeah. And at the end of the day, we just had so many men throughout our history who, you know, like you said, committing crimes just so they can eat, yeah. committing crimes just so they can survive. Like at the end of the day, we are putting our folks in these situations where I have to do something that morally I may not agree with. But because of my circumstance, because of this capitalist society, this is what I have to choose to do to survive. Yeah. And so if we don't start having conversations about that, I don't think I think it's less about painting him as a villain and as somebody who is just callous and, you know, just has these blocks against, you know, why Fred Hampton did the things that he did. Yeah. Like we have to really start to question, you know, what are we doing in this society to make sure that black men can come through a nurturing environment to not have to make those choices. Yeah. No, I agree. Because what other choice did he have? I don't want to go to jail for, you know, five years. They're going to give me more time than they're going to give a white person doing the same thing. Yeah. Why do I want to put my life because I, I committed a crime to be able to try to make some money for myself or whatever? Yeah. And then this is the decision that I'm given by the FBI. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, at least he did try to run up the, 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 the tab yeah. Yeah. at the very least. But it's just sad that, you know what I'm saying? Like, we have a man who has been raised and nurtured and this is what he tried to do a in his community juxtaposed a petty thief yeah. and that's just what the reality was and we have to talk about that reality so that we can do better yeah. no I agree I, I, I wholeheartedly agree and um, for those of you who have not seen the movie um, but if you haven't seen the movie you need to make sure that you check it out it is currently on HBO Max until I think 
March something. Mid-March. Yeah, right? And yes, yeah, March 12th or something. And then I don't know like what that. they're doing after that, but um, it is out there. And if you have HBO Max, most of you, a lot of you probably have it, especially if you have AT&T Unlimited, Sprint Unlimited. I think they're giving it as part of the, those deals as well. Um, look at the movie. It's, it's a great movie. Um, you see at the very end um, that Chairman Fred, there were 99 shots um and what the evidence shows is that the black panthers the individuals who were in the home only did one shot right and all yes. of the other the 99 shots were coming from the police officers um and i and i think and that one bpp shot was just because he got shot, shot in the heart exactly and it was a response and, yeah. and to hear i i i, I do want to highlight this part to hear that he's already wounded they come in and they been the cops come in and say basically oh i don't think he's i don't think he's going to make it anyhow and then three more shots or how many yeah. shots more just to ensure um that yeah. he's deceased um and it, it's yeah. just problematic and when you see and for those of you who saw 13th you see her see them coming out basically smiling with him on a gurney coming out um and so it's, it's just an unfortunate situation so i want to take the to time to really say thank you um for participating um you are a master in what you do um so thank it's you. important that you continue to do that um i put your information out there but if you want to tell the people how they can um, find you on social media or get in contact with you maybe someone wants to you know maybe there's teachers listening and they want you to do some consultations i don't know um just tell the people okay so i'm pretty much uh at kena in the city on every single social media platform um and i also uh for educators especially those who are looking to transform um literacy education in in their school districts you can reach me at the savvy urban educator.com and so um, pretty much all of my i'm savvy baby but listen my whole black history collection and black literature collection is on that website um i also uh, as a trained and licensed reading specialist, I definitely um, try to help parents determine different um, things. I test children for dyslexia and different, you know, other things like that. And so just reach out to me if you are a parent of a child who uh, has special needs or if you have questions coming out of this pandemic and they've been out of school for so long and you need someone to test your child to see if they're still on grade level, definitely reach out to me at the SavvyUrbanEducator.com and I'll be happy to test your children for free. So, um, but that's pretty much how you can get me at Kena in the city and at the Savvy Urban Educator.com. All right. So you heard that. Make sure that you reach out to her, even if you just want to say, hey, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> for us here at Peeps Creek, you know that you can reach us always on our website. Our website is www.peepscreek.com. It's updated. I take pride in the fact that it's updated. So I, I put on there a new updated website. I know there's people probably tired of saying that, but I'm going to put it on there until I'm done. <laughs> you can get us on IG, Twitter, TikTok at, at Peeps Creek. You can get us on Facebook at Peeps Creek Cafe. Um, you can even send us a message if you want, you know, 202-618-0043. Um, and then our email is cafe at peepscreek.com. 
Um, and back to the website, make sure that you sign up for the um, newsletter. Oh, by the way, Keena, I signed you up anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, so, yeah, so I really appreciate it. Um, until next time, continue to drink, listen, and converse. Um, so, yeah, so that is the episode. We appreciate you and peace and love. Okay.